Good selection of hymns. We're glad to have travelers back from Southern California. You made good time. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Worship his holy name. It's, um, it's great. Also, um, the first selection that we sang, that the Lord's grace is enough. We've been reading through Matthew chapter 5. We're going to go there this morning. Um, we have the words of the Lord Jesus, and um, they're enough. They're, they're enough for us. We, um, um, we thank him for his truth. He is the truth, and um, he is the one who, uh, who teaches us this morning. By way of review, there were several points in David's message last week that I'd like to reemphasize for us this morning. Uh, last week, we, um, we looked at the passage on anger, and that was um, Matthew 5, 20 through 26. And um, selfish anger, Jesus said, is as punishable as murder. We may think of anger as the first step toward murder, but in God's sight, unjustified anger is murder. God sees the heart, and he's as offended by what he sees in our hearts as what he sees us acting out. The second point was that in, uh, in these verses, Jesus challenges the superficiality of his hearers. I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. To the average synagogue attender, these Pharisees were incredibly righteous. How can my righteous exceed the righteous of these, uh, righteousness of these scribes and Pharisees? However, these religious leaders were masters of form and appearance and external obedience. Inside, they were full of extortion and self-indulgence. So uh, the Lord Jesus challenged them. They may have looked okay, but their hearts were in the failure mode. And then third, uh, we looked at the example of Cain in Genesis. Cain was angry with his brother. Why? Because his brother's sacrifice was accepted God respected his brother's offering, but not Cain's. So God asked Cain to think about his anger. He set before Cain two paths. He said, if you do well, you'll be accepted. But if you do not do well, behold, sin lies at your door. Sin is waiting for you. It's just, um, it's just a matter of... Um, of uh, uh, of waiting, it's gonna come. The Lord is righteous. We have seen righteousness in no one else like the Lord's righteousness. Psalm 36 uh, reads, your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. So if we don't understand these words, it's because we don't understand the Lord's righteousness. We need to, to enter into that. So his righteousness is great, but his mercy is in the heavens, and his faithfulness reaches to the clouds. 
He warns the transgressor of his way, and he offers the transgressor ample opportunity to turn from his way and turn to the Lord. That's his faithfulness, that's his grace, that's his mercy. We have, uh, fi- we have startling truths in the scripture that we're studying this morning. It's the second of five sections on, uh, in the Sermon of the Mount that the, that the Lord Jesus began, you have heard it was said, or it has been said, but I say to you, that's startling. Jesus' hearers were amazed. We read in, uh, at the end of the sermon, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Look at the faces in the multitude. They were stunned by the otherworldliness of Jesus' teaching. If you're not unsettled by the preaching of Jesus these weeks, you probably don't understand what the Lord is saying. So let's pick up here and read uh, in Matthew 5, starting at verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize from your word that your righteousness is as the high mountains. We, um, we look at these verses and it, um, it's radical. It's, um, um, it it uh, really uh, grips us. And so we pray that you would allow us to understand and to apply the truths that you have here. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus restated and restored the definition of adultery. There was the commandment of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's found in the giving of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Leviticus also, um, the Lord says, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife. If we were to um, try to form a definition of adultery, we'd come up with uh, something like vines. He said, uh, the unlawful intercourse of, um, of one with a spouse of another. Or Webster's 1828 dictionary, it's the unfaithfulness of any married person to the marriage bed. It's uh, sex by a husband with someone who's not his wife. It's sex by a wife with someone who's not her husband. USA Today Network published in 2014 that in 21 states, there is legislation on the books that forbids adultery. 
that cheating in marriage was against the law, punishable by a fine or even by jail time, 21 states. But these anti-adultery laws are rarely enforced. What are the blessings of marital fidelity? Quote also from, uh, from the news, most couples who marry do so with the expectation of fidelity. And I have yet to go to a wedding where the couple wasn't expecting fidelity. Adultery is often seen as a breach of trust and of the commitment that had been made during the act of marriage. Consider the promise of a wedding vow. I promise to love and cherish you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, and forsaking all others, keep myself only unto you. For so long as we both on earth shall live. Forsaking all others, keep myself only to you. That's fidelity. That is marital faithfulness. There's a prayer expressed in our hymn book that um, touches on the benefits of this faithfulness. Oh, give us homes with godly fathers, mothers, who always place their hope and trust in him, whose tender patience turmoil never bothers, whose calm and courage trouble cannot dim. A home where each finds joy in serving others, and love still shines though days be dark and grim. The home. This blessing exists only where is that mutual trust between husband and wife. Without that one man, one woman devotion in marriage, we rise little higher than the wild horses in the desert. What of the heartache of unfaithfulness? The state of California does not have anti-adultery laws. In fact, the state of California allows sex between consenting people of minimum age no matter what their marital status is. And today, society calls adultery extramarital relations. The world thinks a person weird or naive who isn't sexually active as a teenager. What makes adultery wrong? Well, first and foremost, God hates marital infidelity. We can close our books on that one and take that to the bank. That's all the justification we need. God hates it. That's, that settles it. But there are um, there are benefits. Secure marriages provide desperately needed order in society. The Lord Jesus, uh, we're going to look at this um, in the months ahead. The Lord said um, that he created man and woman, that they, uh, they come together and become one flesh. And what God puts together, let no one separate. We... Um, we see that order 
And we see disorder in the life of King David. If ever you needed evidence for the damage done by infidelity, go to Second uh, Samuel 11 and read, uh, read the chapters that follow. It's a, uh, a story, a litany of, um, uh, of heartache, of um, murder, uh, incest, um, all these things follow infidelity. So God hates infidelity. Secure marriages provide needed order. And then thirdly, really marital faithfulness pictures our spiritual purity in response to God's faithfulness and his devotion. In, um, in the Old Testament, God used it of Israel. He, he used the terms of um, fidelity and faithfulness uh, when Israel was spiritually true to him. He used that marriage relationship to picture Israel's uh, faithfulness or unfaithfulness to him. And he does the same with the church in the New Testament. Okay? So the, uh, the marriage and faithfulness in marriage is really a, um, a picture of uh, spiritual faithfulness to the Lord. It's, it's a precious picture that he has instituted. So... Um, the Lord Jesus has uh, restated the, um, the definition of um, adultery, and he has restored the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The problem in the New Testament, the problem in, um, uh, that the Lord Jesus was addressing here was that the Pharisees had so formalized the law that anything that wasn't publicly um, scandalous was okay. As long as you weren't indecent, you didn't cross the line of public uh, decency, you were all right as far as adultery was concerned. So the Pharisee of Luke 18 prayed with himself for the temple, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers. This Pharisee, in his, in his uh, self-perceived righteousness, was saying, God, I'm no adulterer. He was proud of that. But he was looking at the external. He was dismissing his heart. Let's define terms. In verse 28, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What does that word mean, look? We, look, we go to our Greek dictionary and the word for look implies a special contemplation. It implies uh, more intensity and greater, greater earnestness than the word simply to see. The word lust means to desire earnestly, to crave, to long for. So our um, Bible translator Wiest translate the verse this way. He says, everyone who is looking at a woman in order to indulge his sexual passion for her.
After gazing at a woman, a worldly friend excused himself. He said, I wasn't desiring her. I was only admiring her beauty. Do you find an element of truth in that? We may ask if there is a difference, and if so, what's the difference between carnal desire and Godward appreciation? God is ingenious. He is profoundly inventive. He is a master artist. He created woman with a pleasant face, with a shapely form, with graceful carriage, and he doesn't apologize for it. <laughs> How dull might earth be without a woman's beauty? Amen from the other half of the audience? Psalm 104 reads, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. And we find references in scripture to uh, woman's beauty. Uh, the Egyptians saw the woman Sarai in uh, Genesis 12, that she was very beautiful. That was the uh, Egyptians' uh, uh, assessment. That was their, their evaluation of, of Sarai. Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance, we read in Genesis 29. In Job 42, in all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. So it's there. God has created a woman with, uh, with these qualities, with uh, beauty. As a young believer, I wore virtual blinders in public saying, don't look at that woman, don't look at this woman, uh-oh, young woman coming ahead. Sometime later, I was sitting with an older brother, and he said something to the effect that so-and-so's wife is beautiful. And I thought, of course she is, but you can say that. He's a... Uh, He's a brother who was able to admire God's creation without lusting for his creature. I realized that I too could appreciate beauty without lust. Think of hiking through Yosemite Valley, being awestruck with the sheer cathedral-like walls of granite on either side, and wonder hearing the roaring of Yosemite Falls in the springtime uh, flow. Looking down from the bridge over the Merced River and seeing the, the trout uh, swimming around below. I praise the Lord for the beauty of his creation. It's, it's just a sensory overload and uh, time for praising the Lord. I stopped a, a ranger for directions, for information, and uh, in talking with her, I realized she has a pretty face. My praise for the Lord hasn't stopped. I'm still praising him for his creation, for his beauty. And I, I do so um, admiring his, his beauty. God doesn't want his creature hidden beneath a black robe and veil in a full-length hijab. 
but he wants her to be modest and to dress in a way that is non-seductive. So at what point does appreciation for God's creation cross over into the realm of lust? May I suggest the following test? The look with which you look, does it lead from righteousness to greater righteousness? Or does it lead from lawlessness and lust to greater lawlessness? Does my look result in fresh love and appreciation for the Lord and his creation or to desire for self-gratification? In other words, in what direction does this look lead me? The Lord says that um, this one who looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Well, what's the importance of being in the heart? God sees the heart. In Psalm 139, we find uh, the psalmist says, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You've known my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. So the psalmist realized um, the Lord is able to see my thoughts. He's able to, uh, to read them from afar off. In Jeremiah, we read, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. The human heart is as visible to God as our faces are visible to you and me. Just that plain. There's nothing hidden from him. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Slide, please. Imagine a world where houses and buildings were fabricated with transparent materials. That's all we have. We got these walls, uh, we're gonna build your house for you, but it's all gotta be uh, clear. It's all gotta be transparent. You walk through your neighborhood and everybody's living in clear houses, transparent houses. Oh, hi, hi, Mrs. Jones, looks like you're fixing nice scrambled eggs there. Oh, hi, Billy, looks like you got your homework all done. Just walking down the street, everybody's right there. Show the next slide. Uh, another transparent house. Um, they also call these privacy-free homes. One game the, um, the kids don't play is hide-and-seek. Think about Jesus walking through the multitudes or preaching to them. As he, as he pans across the, the audience, he knows the innermost thoughts of each heart. As he, as he ministers. He's, they're as visible to him as their, as their bodies, as their faces. What about those times when you're not thinking about the Lord, but indulging in selfishness or lust? Well, he sees those thoughts as clearly as the ones you direct to him in prayer. 
The heart is an open book to the Lord. So this is a reason why Jesus equates the thoughts like anger or sexual lust with the act like murder or adultery. Both are equally offensive to him. We'd like to quote Hagar as um, she and her son Ishmael were hiding in the wilderness. Uh, Sarah had sent them away. The Lord was able to find her. And so Hagar uh, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. Elroy, Elroy, you are the God who sees. God's able to see, we don't. And he wants your heart. In Deuteronomy, this is way back, Moses uh, on the mount. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. God wants all your heart because he loves you with all his. Blessed are the pure in heart. How is yours today? Well, Jesus restated and he restored the definition of adultery and he calls the adulterer to repentance. Jesus is an active participant in his creation and not a casual bystander. As such, he expects us, his creatures, to take decisive, drastic action when necessary. So he says in uh, uh, verses 29 and 30, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. In verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cast it off, cut it off and cast it from you. That's radical. That's decisive. His warnings here seem to follow his urgent proclamation in chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The right hand, the right foot, the right eye represent the best that we have. There's so much a part of us that plucking out or cutting off would make life very difficult for us. The eye represents what we see, perhaps what we receive in life. The hand represents what we do, perhaps what we give in life. And in any case, there are distractions through the eye with the hand that can lead us to sin. These could be uh, relationships, could be uh, standard of living, could be lifestyle, hobby, college diploma, or advanced degree, professional recognition, religious attainment, athletic prowess, life ambitions. If they distract you from the Lord, Jesus says they must go. There is not room enough in entering the narrow gate to be pulling all this behind us. It won't fit. We have to discard it. We have to leave it. Slide, Luke. There was a young man who took the Lord literally. 
And this is an article from the Hayward Daily Review back in 1984. A 29-year-old man, Tuesday afternoon, chopped off his right hand with an ax, claiming the Bible instructed him to sever his hand, police said. Uh, they said the man then refused medical attention from doctors at Kaiser Hospital. The incident occurred in the Kaiser Hospital parking lot. He said the biblical injunction to chop off a limb guilty of a wrongful act compelled him to chop off his hand, said Sergeant Gary Branson, but police did not know what wrongful act he had committed. Had he sought proper counsel, this man could have avoided much pain and suffering. We admire those who follow the Lord no matter what the cost, but in this case, he mistook the Lord's figurative speaking for literal. We need to tell the difference. For example, the Lord in John 6 said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Lord is speaking figuratively, not literally. He spoke to them and meant that they must appropriate by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they must make their own the benefits, the value of his death at Calvary in order to be saved. To eat his flesh, to drink his blood, is to believe on him, to trust in him, and to make him our very own. We need to discern the Lord's figurative language. So the plucking out of one's eye, the cutting off of one's hand represent drastic, deliberate, decisive action to discard those things that cause me to lust and to commit adultery. As a young believer, I subscribed to the big East Bay newspaper because I wanted to stay current on world and local events. But um, I was drawn to the glossy advertising inserted in the newspaper, and I found the ads included photos that were hindrances. They were stumbling blocks to my struggle with lust. So I canceled the subscription. Years later, the internet arrived. I realized that I had a personal electronic portal to the world, offering me more than those glossy ads ever could. Instead of having to turn the page of a newspaper, <coughs> these ads would pop up without warning. Something drastic had to be done. I made a covenant with my eyes. Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? I contracted with myself thus. The day that I used the internet to lust after women, I would cut my internet service. It would be a loss for me as I bank, I shop, I email, I research, 
uh, for messages like this online. By God's grace, I still have internet service after 20 years. Take the example of our young, uh, young friend, we'll call him George. George knows the exhortation, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. George's life for the Lord has amounted to a big zero because he's trapped by lust on the internet. He struggled and failed. His heart is not pure, so he doesn't enjoy even simple quiet time with the Lord. What's the cure? Cut it. Cut it off. Be done. <clears throat> Goodbye. Internet, source of, uh, of lust. Hey, I can't do that, says George. I file job applications online. I buy everything online. I pay my bills online. I bank online. George finds that his evenings are consumed by videos and shows on TV by the latest offerings from Netflix, by the new releases uh, on HBO. He can't make it to evening meetings because he's tied up with his, um, uh, with, his, with his viewing. Again, he's tried to break away and, try and failed. What is the solution? He's got his uh, DVD player, his monitor, his, uh, his TV, the big screen. George says, hey, I can't do this either. This is my one relax relaxation that I have after work. But if we look at George's life, we realize that even more demanding and distracting than his internet use or his video watching is the stream of insistent calls on his cell phone. He's unable to resist invitations from old friends, even those who are not really his friends. What must he do? What happens when I cut the power line to my cell phone? It dies. This is unreasonable, George says. My cell phone is my one contact with my buddies. I use my cell phone for Google Maps to tell where I need to go in town. You know what this is like? This is like cutting off my right hand. George. That's exactly what the Lord means. Pluck out your eye, cut off your right hand. This is an example of the drastic, decisive action that the Lord prescribed. We want to turn now to, um, to unbelievers because the Lord refers to 
members perishing in hell. And um, the, ch the child of God is eternally secure. He is not in danger of being cast into hell. So as applicable as this is to us generally in discarding distractions, the Lord Jesus is going to, he has a message for the unsaved. The same hindrances and distractions that keep the child of God from enjoying communion with him will keep the unregenerate from enjoying eternity with him in heaven. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Jesus is concerned about your profitability, your welfare. He says, it would not be profitable for you. Listen to the one who speaks the truth in love. Jesus taught about hell at least six times in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is the second of the six. We learn also about hell in Scripture that Jesus created hell. He created hell for the devil and his angels but he created it. Jesus, and not the devil, has the keys of Hades and of death. Comes as a shock to some people. The devil will be an inmate, not the warden. Jesus has the keys to Hades and death. Jesus judges the lost for their sin and consigns them to eternity in hell. We pause because this is somber truth. Jesus knows about hell. He's, uh, he's the one who can best tell us about hell. But let's continue. Christ died for our sins. He paid the debt of sin and eternity of torment for each sinner. He endured hell for you. Jesus instructs the lost sinner to take as drastic action as necessary to avoid hell. Stay away from it. I know what it's like. I created it, Jesus seems to say. The rational mind cannot doubt the love that Jesus has for the lost. He paid the penalty for the crime of adultery when he died on the cross. He took the place of an adulterer there. I suffered much for thee, more than thy tongue can tell, of bitterest agony to rescue you from hell. I've borne, I've borne it all for thee. The Lord repeats his warning. He says, um, it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Why, why does he do that? He could have said it once. I like to think back to Genesis 41 when Joseph was uh, telling the interpretation of the dream to Pharaoh. He told Pharaoh the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Jesus is repeating himself. He is emphasizing 
that this is a warning that you need to heed. Why does Jesus say time and again in reference to hell that people would be cast into hell? He, Jesus brings believers to God. He, God conveys or transports believers into the kingdom of his son. Jesus returns to receive his believers to himself to take them to his father's house, but he casts the unrepentant into hell. He throws them into hell. Hell is not a place you walk into, you, you walk into, nor a place where people drop you off. It's the equivalent of uh, Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom outside Jerusalem, where people would throw, throw dead bodies to be burned. <clears throat> the people uh, to whom Jesus preached understood that, that he was talking using this uh, Valley of Hinnom as a, uh, a picture of the reality of hell. They understood the symbolism. It's severe, it's somber. And in these verses, Jesus seems to anticipate the desire of some to take their adultery and their lust to heaven with them. People think, well, I'm going to take my, um, take my lusty videos with me or the, um, my romance novels. <clears throat> I'm going to take these to, to heaven with me. On the contrary, Jesus says, the lustful eye, the offending hand, the adulterous heart will keep a person from heaven. They're not things that people bring into heaven. Adulterers, God will judge. But those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their personal, spiritual, soul bankruptcy, those who mourn their personal failure and their unfitness for company with God, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they come to God trusting in the finished work of Jesus. If we confess with our mouth that uh, Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Is there hope for the adulterer? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes to the Corinthians, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. And such were some of you. He's addressing the Corinthian believers. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Is there hope? Yes, absolutely. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Come to him 
for the salvation of your soul. What do we learn of the Lord Jesus in, in these verses this morning? He's got a great heart. He's a terrific Savior. He is faithful. And he desires marital faithfulness. He is just. He created the place of punishment for those who break his law. He is El Roy, Jehovah, who sees even the recesses of the human heart. He is pitying, compassionate, warning the sinner of hell and providing full atonement, providing full payment for his penalty. He is decisive. He's a captain, deliberate, and uncompromising. So we praise him this morning. Lord, you startled us with your truth. It unsettled us um, as disciples that um, uh, we should be drastic in our um, cutting off those things that distract us, that, um, uh, that draw us away from you. And I pray for we who are gathered here who know you that uh, we might be decisive in dealing with these um, uh, lusts and uh, tendencies. Lord, for those who don't know you, we realize that they must deal drastically as well and repent of, of these very sins. We pray that they would mourn their um, uh, their failure, that they would recognize their, um, their, uh, their poverty before you and that they would come to you in faith, trusting in your finished work for their salvation. We pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.